Winter was here, but we're just getting started here on our second season of Game of Thrones rewatch here on Post Show Recaps. And now, here are the two guys who have never killed a man on our name day. I'm Rob Cisperino, back with Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? Yeah, I just don't want to to reap that all year. If I sow that on my name day, that's just going to follow me all year. So I wait to to have my acts of murder on any day but my name day would be uh, would be a preference personally. I mean, I guess you got to do what you got to do, right? Like if it if it comes up on your birthday, you got to do what you have to do. But otherwise, just you know, try to avoid that one day of the year if you can. And if you do have to murder a man on your name day, just make sure it's well struck, well struck. <laughs> Yeah, I, I already, already said that. I already said that. I already you said that. Well struck. You can't use the same line <laughs> if I've already used it once. It's repetitive. <laughs> it's duplicative. Yeah. <laughs> Classic Joffrey episode, The North Remembers, episode one of season two, threatening to kill a man on his name day, being uh, very uh, graciously talked out of it by the Hound, uh, but still just being a horrible, horrible brat, as we have come to expect from Joffrey Baratheon. Uh, really not much has changed in that regard between seasons one and season two. All right. So we are beginning our first of 10 episodes here in season two and we really do go around the globe of westeros uh, westeros planetos that's a globe it's not flat do we have that uh, confirmed yeah i don't know if there is a flat planetos uh, contingent out there of people who think that the world of ice and fire is flat but truthfully we don't really know in fact i'm staring at a map of the known world of ice and fire right now and it is called the known world specifically because we don't know everything about what exists it in the world of ice and fire. It is not all known. Uh, there's uh, you know entire continents that may or may not exist that are not completely uh, uh, discovered at this point. So who really knows? But that would be a hell of a plot twist if Game of Thrones is building up to some sort of flat Earth reality. I think uh, you know for a guy who really has his fingers on the pulse, George R. R. Martin, I think that that would be a real whiff. You would lose me there. So hopefully it's not flat planetos. Okay, so uh, we got a lot to talk about there as we talk through all of the plot lines in our spoiler-free way. And then we'll get into all of the lasting ramifications that we see here in this 11th episode of Game of Thrones. And I guess we should probably start in King's Landing because uh, that's where a lot of the uh, action or drama is starting to take place in terms of the uh, building intrigue. We see Joffrey uh, continuing to be horrible as uh, he's just uh, making people fight, including a drunkard by the name of Sir Dantos, who we see here today. He's already had uh, only two cups of wine. Yeah, so and he can hold that. Like he looks like two cups of wine. Like that's not going to be the worst thing in the world for him. But uh, Joffrey is—he's uh, unimpressed by two cups of wine. He wants to make sure Sir Dantos gets his fill. Uh, so he is going to—he's basically going to make uh, Sir Dantos funnel a keg of wine. Like this is some serious hazing going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I love all of this stuff here in King's Landing of, you know, just classic Joffrey being horrible uh, with Sir Dantos. Uh, oh, really? That's it? Oh, just two cups? Oh, then why'd you have some more? Why'd you- he's, <laughs> he's just the, he's the worst. He's the absolute the worst. Is that it? 
Yeah, nothing new there. I, I do think, you know, that might be um, something I'd love to to like dig into a little bit here as we're as we're opening up the book on season two of Game of Thrones. There is this feeling of like not much has changed in the world of Ice and Fire since last we left it. You know, we are just a couple of weeks removed from discussing um, episode 10 of season one, the season one finale. We had a little bit of a break in between where we talked about season one in totality before we started into season two. But there really is kind of this just casual way of hopping right back into the world of Game of Thrones with like no real kind of um, like no cold open to the season, the way that there was a literally cold open to the very first episode of Game of Thrones where we started beyond the wall with characters that were not going to be of great significance moving forward. And I, I do feel like I kind of missed that personally. Um, I feel like that really helps that very first episode of Game of Thrones feel like more of an event that you're starting in this way with this prologue that's not going to have um, you know massive ramifications in terms of the specific characters that are involved in it. It kind of makes it feel like its own isolated little story. I feel like there's a little bit of a missed opportunity here with the way that the season, uh, the season two premiere kicks off, where we're just back in King's Landing with Joffrey being terrible. Do you like that or do you think that there should have been like a little bit of something that kind of just like eases us into the world of Game of Thrones again just a little bit more? I mean, this was fun for me to go and watch this all again on the rewatch. I don't remember being blown away on the first watch. Do you have a different pitch of where they could have started this? Well, I think, you know, there is the, the way that George R. R. Martin writes the books is that every book begins with a prologue and every prologue typically comes from the perspective of somebody who is tangential to the main story or at least is not going to be a central player in the main story may or may not be ill fated, uh, getting ill fated. So I think that that's always a fun way to start those books. And there is a sequence in here um, that is the prologue of the second book of Game of Thrones, of, of A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, the second book being A Clash of Kings. And it's everything that we're seeing on Dragonstone and we're meeting Stannis Baratheon and we're meeting um, the other people that are involved in that character's storyline, including Melisandre, the Red Priestess. Uh, we are meeting Davos Seaworth, who is the guy with the fantastic beard. And we're meeting Maester Cresson, who is the guy who um, serves, you know, Old Town. He's from Old Town. He's from the Citadel. We've seen a lot of maesters on Game of Thrones at this point. He is of that order. And whatever Melisandre is peddling here on Dragonstone, he does not seem to be a fan of. And he carries out this misguided assassination plot against Melisandre. And it really backfires. It does not work. It ends very poorly for this guy. And that whole story is told in one movement. It's told as uh, the prologue of the second book of the series. And that's one of my favorite passages. You know, that's one of my favorite stories in all of the A Song of Ice and Fire books. I feel like the way that George R. R. Martin wrote that story. It's very intense. It's kind of a thriller. And I think that it's just it's a little bit toothless here on the show. And I feel like that's a really strong start to a larger story. And I think to to have that positioned at the beginning of the season, I think that that would have been a really fun way of introducing you to the to the world of Stannis Baratheon, who's a guy we heard a lot about towards the end of season one. And it's just kind of we're just like airdropped into the middle of that story. I don't know. I feel 
like some sense of unfamiliarity at the beginning of your Game of Thrones season, that would be my preference. I think just a kind of really, you know, as a as a delineation from the season that came before and everything that's going to come next. I think just having a little bit of a slice of, uh, you know, this sort of out of context story that will become more contextualized the further we go. I think that that's a wise thing to do. And I, I wish season two had went that way. How does it play out differently in the book? It doesn't play out much differently in the book other than you're in the headspace of Maester Crescent. You're in the mind of this guy uh, who is played on the show by Oliver Ford Davies, who, of course, you remember from the Star Wars prequels uh, where he played. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the character. C.O. Bibble. C.O. Oh, Bibble could, from the Star Wars prequels. How could prequels. you blank how could you on forget? C.O. Bibble? How could you forget C.O. Bibble, you know, of Naboo, uh, the guy who says we've lost all communication. How could you forget that, man? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you're in the headspace of Maester Cressen in this prologue chapter. So you're really kind of like feeling his discomfort with Melisandre and the fact that she has come to Dragonstone and everything that seems to be going on here with this man, Stannis Baratheon, who seems to be very high on himself, I think is something that's pretty clear from this first episode with this character. Uh, so you, you just get a lot more of the insight to what Stannis means to the Maester and how Dragonstone's culture has changed changed since the arrival of the Red Priestess. I think that that all would be really, really fun to get out of the way right away uh, because that's new information. It's a little bit jarring. I think when you're starting a season, you have an opportunity to be a little bit jarring. I think the great seasons of television start that way where there is, a, you know, I'm thinking about Lost as I often do, where the seasons would begin with these really radical scenes that you didn't really know what was going on. And that became a hallmark of that show. You see that on Breaking Bad. You see that on a lot of shows uh, and I think that that's something that Game of Thrones could have done better here in season two yeah it's always difficult to introduce new characters into a uh, sprawling drama such as this I think that this will be a recurring theme that we will talk about over the seasons where Game of Thrones uh, will struggle with this so they do have a lot of world building to do with uh, everything going on on Dragonstone and the Stannis who is mentioned a lot in season one but we don't see him here until season two yeah so just had to get that off my chest you know i love game of thrones you know i am a big fan i i stand game of thrones i even stand it yeah you know so i love this show clearly i've devoted a lot of my life to covering this show and being inside of this world so just when i when i when i feel like it could have gone a different way i just feel like i gotta gotta get that out there rob okay Of course, uh, in addition to some sarcastic Joffrey, we see the arrival of Tyrion at King's Landing. We saw him in the previous episode that Tywin told him to go be serve as the hand of the king in his stead. And we see Tyrion show up and uh, the dink is great throughout all this. Oh, he's so good. He has a a pretty fantastic line. I think that in terms of the great quotes of Game of Thrones, uh, what he says to Cersei here about your love of your children is your one redeeming quality, that and your cheekbones. Like there's just a lot of great asides uh, that are that are coming from his way. And I think it's it's an exciting prospect to have a character like Tyrion now thrust into the middle of the King's Landing intrigue, which was already such an exciting, um, you know, an exciting part of season one was watching Ned Stark 
navigate this world. And he was really not a political animal. This was like, you know, uh, forcing a, a Viking to work a corporate job. You know, it's just not a fit. It's not something that works. So to see Ned Stark acting as Hand of the King um, around people like Varys and people like Littlefinger, uh, even Grand Maester Pycelle with his, you know, his fake old man act, as we saw in the season one finale, and even Cersei, who is somebody who's pretty shrewd and has certainly been willing to to bend the moral rules here and there. Uh, it was never comfortable for Ned, but that was what, what was so exciting about it. That was part of the tension. Now he's gone. He did not survive that experience, and in retrospect, makes a lot of sense why. Tyrion Lannister is not somebody who you imagine really doing quite well on a battlefield, even though he was willing to go out there, even though he got knocked out before he had the chance to really get to the battlefield last season. But this is a guy who uh, his sword is his mind, as he said to Jon Snow early on in season one. And so this is somebody who you imagine being a little more at home in the political world of King's Landing. And we're starting to see that here in this very first episode. And without spoiling anything, I think it's safe to say that this will be an exciting storyline in season two. I think that this is the storyline that you and I are probably the most hyped up for uh, heading into season two. Right. Uh, Very excited for everything going on here in King's Landing. Uh, By the end of the episode, we see King Joffrey uh, get into it a little bit with Cersei. uh, And uh, really, we are starting to see that Cersei is losing control of Joffrey. We saw that during the beheading of Ned Stark, but he is being uh, quite rude to Cersei. And any time that, you know, we're uh, we're making Cersei out to be the uh, sympathetic character that we know something has gone haywire here and uh, that she even slaps him in the face. And he's like, mother, never do that again. Don't you ever slap me in front of my constituents again. Love a Joff slap. Uh, good job slap is always a good time at the movies. Yeah, it's great. Uh, and he is he is mortified. I think that he bounces back from it a little bit quicker than maybe you would expect Joffrey to like it, back in the day. That would have really been like the end of the, the end of the argument. Right. Like back when when Tyrion smacked him three times in the face, I believe it was uh, or infinite times. If you were watching on YouTube, right. potentially, uh, you know, that really would have shut him up there. But here he's saying to Cersei, like, I could have you killed for that. You will never do that again and you are registering some fear on Cersei's part in response to that so it is definitely a tense and, and scary moment and I think that it's also a, um, a a really fun counterpoint to a scene that we see earlier with Cersei where she's already run into Tyrion Tyrion is here she's furious that Tyrion is here it's no secret that Cersei does not have a lot of love for Tyrion Lannister uh, and Tyrion calls her out and says it must be odd for you to be the disappointing child and I think that that is the thing that is brimming beneath the surface with Cersei here, but she exercised her power in another scene where she is uh, encountering Littlefinger and trying to tell Littlefinger, look, we need to find Arya Stark. Can you do that for me? And Littlefinger kind of sasses Cersei, which is not really an advisable thing to do unless you're part of her family, in which case she really can't take out a lot of power, uh, you know, can, can't use her power against you in the same way that she can against virtually anyone else by being Queen Regent of Westeros. 
gross. Uh, and Cersei responds to Littlefinger by having all of these different members of the Kingsguard like almost slit his throat and, you know, basically just, you know, bully him left and right. It's a really fantastic scene where you're seeing Cersei at the height of her power there. And when you contrast that to the moment with Joffrey, where she's really looking feared for her life, uh, it's a it's a fun just sort of juxtaposition of those two moments, I think. Right. And the great line there is that Littlefinger says to Cersei, uh, oh, you know, uh, Queen Cersei, you have to remember, uh, knowledge is power. And she (laughs) check raises him. It's like, no, power is power. And then she's hard to argue. (laughs) Yeah. And then she actually then learns that lesson uh, the hard way when Joffrey says, you look, I could have you killed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Power is power. Once again, I don't think that Joffrey uh, is, you know, the type of thinker that is going to spin out a a golden yarn quite like that. But it's it's essentially the same exact lesson that she is instilling in Littlefinger. So Game of Thrones built on these sort of um, these, you know, circular callbacks of just, you know, lessons on top of lessons, Rob. It's great writing. Great stuff. Okay. Um, meanwhile, up in the north, we see where the Night's Watch, uh, where the Rangers have uh, gone north, and we end up at Craster's Keep. Yes, and- which I am going to struggle uh, to not call Caster's Creep, because I always call it Caster's Creep, and I never check myself when that's happening. <laughs> well, Caster is, is, uh, Craster is a bit of a creep, so... He- a, a lot of creep. He is a, he is a major creep. I, I don't think we need to parse it. No, no. He has uh, tons of wives who are also his daughters. So that's horrible. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. We've met some horrible, terrible people in the world of Game of Thrones so far. Uh, This is very quickly, instantly a front runner for the horrible people that we have met. Right. And he's very concerned about everything going on with the Night's Watch, potentially uh, getting with his daughters. And uh, he gets into it with Lord Commander Mormont. He has some not nice things to say about Jon Snow. Yeah, he does not like the way that Jon Snow is looking at him. Uh, Stop staring at me, Swan, you know, I think is basically what's going on here. Uh, Stop looking at me, Snow. Uh, He does not like Jon Snow very quickly. And frankly, Lord Commander Mormont is not thrilled with Jon Snow in his arrival here north of the Wall. Jon Snow, very rightly not a fan of Craster. I think that he recognizes that this guy is indeed a creep. Uh, And Jon Snow is very much like Ned's stark in that he is a very honorable guy with a very strong moral compass and a sense of what is right and what is wrong and exists in a world of black and white take the black and white uh and i think that lord commander mormont is trying to instill in john like if you want to lead the night's watch someday if you want to be the guy that succeeds me and certainly that seems to be what lord commander mormont would like then you need to learn how to follow before you can lead and i think that that's a really great lesson that the lord commander is instilling in John here, where sometimes you have to see the shades of gray. Sometimes you can't just exist in that world of black and white. We're north of the wall. We're in Craster's territory. We got to deal with Craster on his terms. And the other thing that I want to touch on before we get into the spoilers is everything that's going on with Rob Stark. And I feel like that this is overall a uh, pretty strong episode for Rob Stark. Uh, We see him get into it with the Kingslayer and uh, turns things around on Jamie Lannister, who is trying to insult him by calling him a boy. And Rob Stark says to him, you insult yourself, Kingslayer. That's a pretty good impression. Can you say some more things in Rob Stark voice? I feel like you've got a really good one in you. 
Uh, let me see if we find some other uh, quotes. You've been defeated by a boy, held captive by a boy. You watch a about boy. a boy. <laughs> you listen to Badly Drawn Boy. Yeah, yeah. Rob Stark really coming at uh, Jamie Lannister here. Pretty harsh. I mean, this is a this is a great scene. I think you know we don't often see Jamie Lannister afraid of anything. Apparently, this man has a fear of direwolves, and who doesn't, right? You know, a direwolf turned loose against you, I think, is a frightening prospect indeed. Mm-hmm. Okay, and we then see Rob Stark. Uh, he's gonna say. Then Cat Stark to go treat with Renly because he feels like if they could partner up with the forces of Renly Baratheon, of course, that the uh, Stannis and Renly forces have uh, split up. Uh, both Renly and Stannis have a claim to the Iron Throne. Rob is sending Cat to go work with Renly and then join their forces to potentially surround the Lannister uh, slash Joffrey Baratheon forces. Yeah, no, I think it's worth setting that up that we are, you know, unsurprisingly, given how season one ended, we are now in the thick of war and there are multiple sides of the war. It's not just one army. It's all out war, baby. Yeah, Shiva the Tiger, Shiva the Direwolf is going to show up any second now. Uh, You know, it's all out war right now and there are more than just two armies. It's not as simple as the Starks versus the Lannisters. Uh, And frankly, it's, you know, the Baratheons in quotes when you're looking at Joffrey's uh, side of the aisle, though it truly is the Lannisters. Uh, There's also Renly Baratheon and Stannis Baratheon, as you mentioned, and we've met Stannis at this point in this episode, and we, I feel like that first scene with Stannis really gives you, um, like the first scene where it's really drilling down into that character, where they're in the war room at Dragonstone, really clues you into who that guy is, uh, where he's drafting a letter that he is going to send to every corner of the Seven Realms. I love the rewrites of the letter. Exactly. It's spectacular where he like he really like he's a very actively involved editor. You know, he's not just going to hit the publish button. He really wants to read your copy. Uh, And he is going to send this note out to every corner of the Seven Kingdoms and say, I have the claim to the Iron Throne. I am the rightful heir. The Iron Throne is mine by rights. He's going to edit out the fact that Robert Baratheon is not his beloved brother because there was no love for Robert Baratheon. Uh, And he is not going to have a lot of love for Renly, who we have met already at this point, um, you know, we we knew we've known him since season one, since the early days of this show, and he is the youngest brother of the Baratheons, and he uh, has now set out for a claim on the Iron Throne as well. So that's a bone of contention for Stannis. So there's those two sides of the war as well. And Rob Stark, I think, really uh, wisely in this episode says to Catelyn Stark, and all that Catelyn wants is to go back to Winterfell and be with Bran and Rickon, and I'm sure. Bran would love that as well because it would mean listening to fewer people that he doesn't want to listen to anymore based on the scenes that we're getting with Bran. He, Rob says to Catelyn, I need you to go and meet with Renly. You have some rapport with that guy. Let's join forces with Renly. Let's kick the crap out of Joffrey Baratheon. We'll deal with Stannis however we need to deal with him. But Rob does not have his sights set on the Iron Throne, I think is a really important distinction to point out if that's not immediately clear from the show. He wants sovereignty for the North. He wants the North to be its own separate realm that will never be encroached upon by anyone else ever again. So his pitch is basically go to Renly, 
tell him that the North is going to be its own separate place. We'll team up with Renly and we'll kick the crap out of everybody else and we'll join forces and we will be allies. And it's kind of like a, a second coming potentially of the relationship between Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon that you know started the Baratheon regime on the Iron Throne anyway. So very complicated stuff as we're here in wartime in Westeros. And I'm sure it is no shock to hear it will only get more complicated as we move forward. Okay, so Josh, I want to get into the spoilers. Anything else you want to set up here about the overall plot of this first episode? The um, North remembers. Know- yeah, so, you know, John's north of the wall. We've touched on that. Daenerys in her uh, Daenerys and her people are kind of wandering around a region of Essos called the Red Waste. It seems very dire for them. No wolves involved, however. Uh, and, of course, the way things end in King's Landing in this episode is with a mass murder of uh, what appears to be all of Robert Baratheon's bastard children, including an infant who is who is uh, murdered by Jano Slint the head of the city watch, who is one of the key guys who betrayed Ned Stark back in season one, Uh, a really, really gruesome, ugly ending to this very first episode of season two. I remember it being pretty controversial at the time. Understandably. So it is a, it is a really grim way to end this episode. Your first game of Thrones episode in nearly a year at this point. So a dark way to close out for sure. Uh, Other than that, I think we can move into the spoilers, dark ways, dark words. That's what they always say. That's right. All right, let's get into the spoilers. They killed all the babies, all the bastard babies. They're all dead. They're all dead. Oh, my God. They're all dead, though. That's not really a spoiler since (laughs) that's in the episode itself. Also, Ned Stark, it was dead. Yeah, he's still dead. Ned Stark is dead. They brought him back to life and killed him again. (laughs) Uh, That that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. At least not yet. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Okay. So, uh, so many different uh, stories beginning here at the start of season two. And so, uh, Josh, where do you want to pick things up? Oh, my God. Yeah. Like you said, a lot of different places. I mean, we've talked a lot about Stannis already. I don't think that that's a horrible place to begin because we're getting Melisandre and Davos onto the show for the first time here in this episode. These are two characters that are going to be major players through seven seasons of Game of Thrones. And I think Melisandre especially is a fun one to track, given what we know about her now. We've known this about her since the start of season six. But what's not known at the time, as you're watching Melisandre's first appearance and as you're watching her subsequent appearances through five seasons of Game of Thrones is that she's secretly the oldest person in the room. Uh, She is ancient, impossibly so. Hard to say exactly how old she is. Uh, But when she's not wearing that glimmering amulet uh, amulet around her neck, she is this massively old person, as we see in the season six premiere. That'll be a fun moment to revisit for sure. But I think it's a fun moment to revisit now given the way that she is taunting and kind of tormenting Maester Cresson here and saying you're an old man who smells like piss and fear and old bones it's like takes one to know one I yeah, guess that's a good point <laughs> you know um, Melisandre ends up drinking the poison what do you think going is going on there is that just her magic is able to uh, just override the poison or is it like a princess bride type situation where she has uh, built up an immunity to all these poisons 
Yeah, it's Iocane powder. I don't know if she's got that immunity. Uh, I don't know if she has uh, taken classes at the Dread Pirate Roberts School for poison aversion. I think it's probably the magic burning that out. We know that that amulet now is at least powerful enough to preserve her youth. I wouldn't be surprised if it has some sort of healing factor component to it. You know, the Wolverine of amulets, if you will. Uh, You don't have to. You don't have to uh, allow that uh, comparison. Um, So I think that it's probably something along those lines rather than uh, just, uh, you know, an aversion to poison. Uh, but she's, you know, she's here and she's preaching the good gospel of Azora High. We're not hearing the words Azora High here in her first speech, but she is talking about prophecy and she's talking about how she believes that Stannis Baratheon is the chosen one and he's going to bring a sword forth from the flames and it will be Lightbringer. And these are key components to the Azora High prophecy that is only now really starting to come into sharper focus on Game of Thrones, but it's encouraging to see like these building blocks here for people who are really big fans of this Chosen One prophecy from the books that didn't get a ton of focus in the show until recently. Like it makes you think the fact that the word Lightbringer is uttered here on uh, Game of Thrones in the in the second season premiere, only eleven episodes deep into what's going to be seventy plus episodes overall, makes me feel like some version of Lightbringer will be a thing that will come up in the final six episodes of Game of Thrones. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some moment where Jon Snow is in a fire and, you know, uh, Longclaw is submerged in fire and he'll pull Longclaw from it and we'll get that shot and he'll slay a White Walker with it right afterwards, uh, which I think is like you could even argue something that you kind of got from Hardhome later on in the series. Uh, so there's just like little bits of that of that prophecy that I think are being planted here that we should uh, we should watch as we're as we're moving forward. You don't think we could get the Beric Dondarian sword in the hands of Jon Snow? It has to be Longclaw? Well, I think that the Beric Dondarian sword is not a Valyrian sword. Like you, you would imagine that the Valyrian sword is still going to be Lightbringer, but maybe not. I mean, I think that that's a that's a good call as well. Uh, you know, if it really is just a matter one of one in each just- hand, maybe. Ooh, I like that. Uh, yeah, like uh, like a Sir Arthur Dane of only of the show. He does. He's not a two sworded guy in the books. And I know that this is a bone of contention as well. <laughs> OK, probably um, five people. Maester Crescent says to Davos, look, you got to say something, Davos, that she's going to get us into this war. She's going to get us all killed. And while Davos doesn't die, Melisandre doesn't die. Uh, Maester Crescent does have a point here. Basically, everybody else from Team Stannis is going to be dead within a couple of years. Oh, yeah. They're all going to be like <laughs> mega dead and like dead swiftly, like in very quick succession. Uh, you know, basically, they're going to burn Shireen at the at the pyre. And in like the very next episode or maybe it's one episode after that, uh, Stannis's wife will commit suicide and then Stannis will meet the business end of Oathkeeper. Uh, so, yeah, th- this was great advice from Maester Crescent. But I think that you are seeing it more now that Davos is John's consigliere. Like, I think that he you know, it's a slow lesson for him to to learn and he's going to have his moments of defiance even within the Stannis Baratheon regime at certain points but I think it's just a, the, it's, the ball is a little too far down the field at that point to stop it from, from continuing to roll within this particular side of the war but I think that these lessons are going to be learned by Davos later where he gives John hard truths all the time uh, and I think that he is a man who just like speaks his mind and speaks pretty freely these days so it's, it's cool to see him in this early moment where Maester Crescent is being like hey yeah this is bad and you 
should be saying something because Stannis actually trusts you. And Davos being like, no, I just got to follow Stannis. Like, that's all that I'm supposed to do. That's why I'm here. And it's as simple as I just got to follow the leader. Uh, and I know that J.R. Mormont says that you got to learn how to follow before you can lead. Uh, but I think he's following Stannis a little too closely. He'll come to regret that. And then I think he'll come into his own under Jon Snow's wing later on. Okay. Um, anything else from uh, Dragonstone? It is a bummer to uh, see uh, Davos Jr., uh, Mathos, uh, here. He will not survive the Blackwater. I completely forgot about Mathos, but what a great name. Mathos. Mathos Seaworth. I feel mm. like is a good one. Um, no, not a ton. I mean, it's cool to see Dragonstone again in this early context where it was really nowhere near as impressive as the Dragonstone of season seven. You know, totally different filming locations. Season seven's Dragonstone is filmed uh, in Basque country, uh, north of Spain. Uh, really, really incredible um, ge- geography and geological structures there. It's just such a beautiful place to behold uh, as it's filmed in season seven. So it's going to be a lot more impressive the further we get into Game of Thrones. Uh, The only other thing I guess I would say is like Melisandre gets a lot of things wrong over the course of this show but she does, you know, she calls her shot really early on. She's saying like after the long summer, darkness will fall on the world, stars will bleed, the cold breath of winter will freeze the seas and the dead will rise in the north. We at least know the dead are rising in the north and all of that other stuff sounds terrifyingly probable. Uh, Uh, So I think that, you know, Melisandre gets a lot of things wrong, but like the broad strokes, the bigger picture seems like she's got her fingers on the pulse. Mm -hmm. Although it seems like that there's a lot of people that are talking about that. It comes up in King's Landing. So it seems like that this is uh, not an uncommon belief right now that long winter coming after the long summer. Yeah, long winter coming after the long summer, but dead rising in the north. That's pretty specific. You know, that, that, is feels, specific. that, is specific. that feels specific. Yeah. Everyone's got their theories about the comet in the sky, too, which is a yeah. cool visual motif that we're uh, we're not really seeing on Game of Thrones anymore. I guess the comet is gone at this point. <laughs> right. But I thought that the books did a better job with the comet. I feel like that that was a, uh, a great device to sort of like sync up all of the different stories going on in the world. I feel like it's a little bit of an aside on the TV show. And a shide. Yeah, I think uh, the comet, the comet is cool as like a transitional device, like going from scene to scene. Like there's that moment where in Winterfell, where Osha is talking to Bran about all the different theories about what everybody is thinking the comet represents. And nobody seems to truly agree. Like some people think that it's uh, that the that the comet is an omen, which means Rob is going to have a great victory in the south. Others say that the comet is Lannister red. Others say it's the color of blood marking the death of Ned Stark. And Osha says, red comets can only mean one thing, boy. Dragons. And then mm-hmm. we transition from there as she's looking up at the red comet in the sky, and then the camera pans back down, and now you're in the red waste with Daenerys and everybody. I think that's such a, it's a really great shot transition, just like getting from one scene to the next. Uh, that I, I love the way that it works visually, but I do think thematically uh, that's just something that you're able to pull off in prose much easier than you are in the visual medium, uh, I think, with something like this. But yeah, no one really knows what the Red Comet is, if it's just a comet falling through the sky, and it can mean whatever you want it to mean. Do you have a theory? Do you have a preferred interpretation of the Red Comet, Rob? 
Uh, I mean, I think that OSHA hits the nail on the head that, you know, the dragons are back into the world. And I mean, the truth is probably, you know, a comet is just a comet. But I mean, in terms of like all of the different ideas that are put out there of like, oh, it means Lannister red. It means Rob is going to have a great victory. I mean, the one thing that I think is uh, making the most sense to me is that the dragons have been born. And if that's what a comet means and there's dragons, I mean, that seems like we're uh, pretty close to uh, the answer, right? Yeah. A comet is also a dog if you're a a Full House fan. Right. Right. Uh, Uh, A shaggy dog. Speaking of a shaggy dog, uh, we will see uh, Bran uh, warging here in this episode. Uh, Is this a full on warg or this is just a dream of warging? No, I think it's real. I think he's warging. I think that he is uh, he is out and about as summer. Uh, and I think that we we spend a lot of time now when we're thinking about Bran Stark, talking about the visions he has and the moments from the past that he now has access to and is able to see. And that's certainly like the the enhancement and the evolution of Bran's powers that are that are uh, you know coming into focus here on the show. But once upon a time, like the big deal about Bran was that he could warg, that he could you know, his consciousness could inhabit other living beings and summer being the main avatar of sorts. Uh, so I, I like that a lot. I love seeing this scene where he is as summer and he's just wandering around. It does, you know, it once again, like I, I really am of the mind that before this whole thing is over, Bran is going to warg into a dragon. Like that just feels like something that has to happen on game of Thrones, you know, only six episodes left for something like that to happen, but it can't all just be green dreams and seeing the past and seeing what's ahead of us potentially. I think that there are these great moments of warging that you're getting early on that really have to culminate in him warging a dragon. It's just, it's I, I it's gotta happen. Gotta happen. I'm, yeah. I'm planting my flag. I think that that's a thing. I don't think you're really going out too far on a limb. I don't think so, I don't think so either. I <laughs> yeah. think if that, if that doesn't happen, that's gonna be very disappointing. Okay. We didn't talk about Danny and the dragons in the spoiler-free section. I mean, uh, not a lot going on other than uh, just uh, they look like they could really uh, use a canteen here as uh, they go through the red waste. Uh, Danny is going to send three of her riders out to the northeast, due east and the southeast. Yeah, and they're they're stuck in the red waste right now, which seems like a really crappy place to be, uh, except that they're near a lot of really cool stuff like Game of Thrones at this moment in time has never been closer to like the uncharted territory of this world than where they are with Daenerys this season when she's in Karth. She's in the red waste in this in this first episode in the first couple of episodes of this season. She's very close right now to a mountainous region called the Bones. Rob, mm-hmm. it's called the bones because it is littered with the bones of the fools who are foolish enough to travel these mountains. If you make it through the other side of the bones, you're in Yeti, which is this great land that's kind of like the like the the Asia of the world of ice and fire that has thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history that you can read about in the world of ice and fire. Uh, Ashai is this way if they're going to make it to the Shadowlands. So this is like as close as they've ever been into some of that really, really cool stuff. And that's fascinating to me and such an exciting prospect. And of course, all for nothing, because we will never go to those places. And instead, we got to go to the House of Undying with the dude who just <laughs> drinks the blue stuff and sucks. And I You don't know, they him. might go there in those last six episodes. 
I don't know about that. I don't know. I'm not I, like that would be going out on a limb uh, saying like we are definitely going to a shy in these final six. Like that feels like a stretch. Uh, but no, we are we are barreling toward Karth. And already the season two Daenerys storyline is kind of just off to a, a little bit of a limp, I think here. Right. I mean, they're very thirsty. <laughs> They're very, very thirsty. The poor silver has uh, has has died now. Uh, Danny's horse from Call Drogo. That is a deviation from the books. I believe the silver is still alive through five books of oh. a song of ice and fire. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of people from the Danny storyline that are just going to drop dead that are like super alive in the books. Like, season two is where they really start changing things up in the Danny story. Uh, and I'm not like the biggest stickler uh, when it comes to like the show has to honor everything from the books. But this was I remember at the time when this show was airing uh, back then. I really was, uh, and I was really frustrated that the show seemed to be taking so many departures in the Danny storyline. And I am feeling like just a tiny bit re-triggered here, I have to admit, just like watching this Danny storyline from season two again, where like I really do have a pretty, you know, casual liberal attitude towards the show has to be the show and it's got to do what the what the show can do that the books cannot do and vice versa. But with the Danny storyline, there's just like a lot of like needless, uh, I don't know, just like, you know, circling the drain type of stuff going on here. And it begins with the death of the silver and it will it will soon the the there's so many people that are going to die here that it's so unnecessary i don't know i'm getting angry i'm just getting angry i'm getting worked up even talking about it rob let's move on let's get out of here let's check in with rob stark and i I wanted to ask you this uh do you feel is this the high point of rob stark in game of thrones it feels like he's really got the wind at his back He's the got three victory, back. gray wind at his back. He's got three victories, better than three defeats, uh, yes. against the Lannister forces that they've got Jamie Lannister, you know, as still as a prisoner. They're going to go send Cat off to go meet with Renly. It feels like uh, that, you know, Theon hasn't defected. I mean, uh, maybe will there be a higher high than this? I don't think so, unless King you want to. in the North. Unless you want to count uh, the higher high being love, you know, but that really also takes into his uh, his permanent lowest of lows. Uh, So, no, I do think that Rob is coming into this episode. Really, you know, he's got the high ground. He is the guy who is uh, he is kicking Lannister butt left and right. Three victories better than three defeats, as you say. Uh, So I I think that we're probably never going to see Rob in quite as sturdy fighting shape. He's going to lose Theon here in a little while. Um, Pretty soon. He is going to get the the news about Theon sacking Winterfell in the name of the Greyjoys. That's going to be a pretty big defeat, a pretty staggering defeat for the Starks. Uh, so, yeah, I think that this this has to be this has to be the highest point for Rob Stark as we're seeing him here just like intimidating the hell out of Jamie Lannister, which I actually thought that this scene was really fun in retrospect, given how afraid Jamie Lannister seems to be of Grey Wind, the direwolf versus how completely unafraid he is of a freaking dragon mm-hmm. in season seven where he is just going to charge into the maw of a dragon with no problem whatsoever uh so just kind of a fun counterpoint there as well yeah although the death against the dragon would have been i guess in his mind more of a hero's death and i think that he was willing to accept that fate as opposed to you know getting mauled by a dire wolf while cowering in his own poop 
<laughs> that definitely i mean when you paint the picture that way i do think you know which option you're gonna take uh neither option great but one option you're more glory through. there against uh, the, yeah. the dragon but yeah you know i i wanted to ask you just from a strategic point of view where rob and the stark forces they're very excited about this idea of being in open rebellion of the uh lannister baratheon forces they want to rule the North. And there's some talk about the tactics that they're going to take where Rob seems to feel like, okay, we need to take King's Landing to be able to get our independence from the North. And they're going to go treat with Renly as opposed to Stannis. But in my mind, I feel like that the Stark forces need to pick a side in terms of who they want to sit on the Iron Throne why did the Stark forces decide to side with Renly over Stannis when it seemed like that Ned Stark seemed to throw in his lot more with Stannis Baratheon? Why did the Stark forces decide to go treat with Renly? Yeah, no, I think it's a really good question. At this point, has Stannis's letter reached Rob? Uh, I'm blanking on the, the I series think so. of events. I mean, based but, on yeah. what he says to Jamie Lannister... Yeah, so I, w- I would guess at this point that Stannis has already issued his very tersely worded letter uh, that probably gives Rob the suggestion that Stannis Baratheon isn't going to be as excited or at least as open to the prospect of Northern independence as Renly. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, I think I think that that might be a thing. You know, Stannis the Too much famous- of a stickler. Yeah, he really is. Stannis the Stickler is definitely a thing. Uh, and I, I think with with Stannis, you know, the famous saying about this character is he will break before he bends like he will not. You know, there is no flexibility. There really is very little wiggle room when it comes to Stannis Baratheon. Uh, he is somebody that just sees things his way and only operates on that level. Uh, so I don't know. I, I think there's some in terms of like the the longer play uh in the grander scheme of things like eventually they would have to deal with the stannis baratheon situation like they would have to deal with reconciling renly and stannis and is there going to be a diplomatic answer to that or is he is rob basically saying we'll help renly fight stannis as well at some point i'm not sure that's just how chaotic the situation has gotten at this point but They would have to deal with that eventually. I just think that for the short term, Renly might be somebody who's a little bit more amenable to uh, to working with Rob towards northern independence. I think that they might be uh, that might be a side of the war that would be open to that at this point. Yeah. And we see Rob and Kat really at uh, loggerheads here where we see that Rob is uh, more aligned with, I guess, the men that he's leading of, hey, we want to rule the north with north men we're tired of we don't want to bend the knee to uh the crown whereas cat is just i just want my kids back i just want my girls back that's why we're going into this war but i i guess the thing that i'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around is i mean could they just uh set up shop at like a moat Kalen and just sort of like defend the north against any sort of it like if we're just running the north here or 
are, are they uh, they're still vulnerable to sort of like a naval attack from the Lannister forces? Well, I think there's probably that. But the bigger deal is that the Lannisters have at least Sansa, though they believe Sansa and Arya. They don't know that Arya is MIA at this point. Um, so I think that they feel like they've got to play offense in order to save, uh, you know, Catelyn's daughter, Rob's sister. I think that they feel like they have to be on the offense in order to to have a, a fighting chance at bringing her home. I think if they were just to retreat to the north, the Lannisters would have really no incentive of giving her back. So I think that for those personal reasons, I think that pushing forward is an important thing. I think maybe for the grander strategic purposes, there is some wisdom to retreating to the north and just holding the north and, you know, let the Baratheons fight it out amongst themselves. But there's that emotional component of Sansa and they believe Arya as well are still in land clutches okay well let's check in with Tyrion in king's landing and uh we mentioned his great arrival into king's landing in this episode uh we see him at the small council meeting and uh, i like that Tyrion did not like send an announcement ahead of time he just shows up at the small council meeting and then uh brings the scroll that says he will be serving as hand of the king uh cersei is like what trick have you done to convince father to let you be the hand of the king I know. Yeah, she's very upset. And he says, if I if I had been able to play tricks on my father, I would be the emperor of the world right now, Uh, which sounds like a great deal. I wish that that was a reality we were living in. You know, Tyrion Lannister, emperor of the world of ice and fire seems like a good in this season. This is my favorite Tyrion. Yeah. Oh, it's this is a very, very, very good Tyrion where he is showing up confident. He is, you know, at the height of his powers here. Uh, It's it's really it's really wonderful. And I think that just there's there's a lot of great notes from his arrival, just some some moments that are really spectacular in hindsight. Him telling Cersei that she's more ravishing than ever. War really agrees with you. That's something that I think we'll come to see is very much a truth about Cersei Lannister that in the thick of war she is really at the height of her confidence at the very least probably in for some sort of terrible downfall in the final season of game of thrones but we underestimated her in terms of her ability to achieve success in season seven after the power move she enacts in season six so love that line from Tyrion to cersei there uh i think that just watching him give that look to Littlefinger, like i know a little bit more about you than you think i know uh you know having a little bit of an indication of what's going on with that cat's paw dagger that's something that'll pay off in the near term if not totally in the long term i don't know the, the whole arrival just like in the armor too and like telling joffrey like oh we looked for you on the battlefield uh you, you sat that one out like i think that that's just like a great little nod that he was willing to go out begrudgingly so onto the battlefield even if he didn't actually make it out there in season one but he's going to be leading the charge in just a few episodes here with blackwater coming up mm-hmm. um I don't know. All of it's so great. The dink is on fire right yeah. now. <laughs> and Marcella and Tom and say, oh, we thought you were dead. He's like, no, death is so boring. And there's yeah. so much excitement with everything going on in the world. Yeah. Uh, great. Yeah. And he tells Tom in that you will be bigger than the hound, but much better looking. Mm. That is one prophecy that does not really come to pass. He's handsome. <laughs> 
Handsome guy. He is handsome. Here's a little fun bit of trivia. Clearly, that Tom and Baratheon is not the same Tom and Baratheon that we will come to know uh, and I guess love. Like he was a nice enough kid uh, later later on in Game of Thrones. That Tom and Baratheon uh, and Marcella as well. Both of them will be recast in future seasons. Uh, Nell Tiger Free is the name of the actress who will play Marcella, and Dean Charles Chapman is the actor who will play Tommen, who first appears on Game of Thrones in a different role than. Tom Tom and Baratheon. He plays Martin Lannister. Martin Lannister. Not Alden Lannister that we see in yes. this episode. Yeah. So, well, I thought that this was Martin Lannister that we were seeing in this in this scene with Rob. And I was like, oh my god, the uh, the just like the the level of uh, like the the uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon of it all with uh, with Martin Lannister and Dean Charles Chapman. It's amazing. It's incredible stuff. Yeah. Also, we see uh, Shay set up here in King's Landing and we get a graphic description of all of the smells of King's Landing. But uh, Shay likes them. I don't want to go to King's Landing anymore. I never want to be there. <laughs> I never want to go there. Doesn't sound like it smells great. It smells corpsey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> smells like many <laughs> things. Corpse. I don't even know if the corpse is at the bottom of the list. For you, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's like I guess I could be down with the with the garlic smell. Sounds fun. Garlic yeah, is know. fine. Garlic, garlic. I mean, like uh, that has to be like kind of the standard smell. Like if you have to DMK, if you have to ding, marry, kill the smells of King's Landing. Let's not. I guess, Let's I guess not. I'll, I'll marry. I'll marry garlic. I know it'll ding. Uh, so I don't know. Well, we neither here nor there. Okay. Uh, we mentioned how Joffrey orders the execution of all of Robert's bastards. We uh, saw Gendry as part of the crew leaving with Yorin for the Night's Watch at the end of the episode. Uh, Then we uh, end this episode again with uh, Yorin and his crew headed up to uh, the wall with uh, Gendry. I thought that that was an interesting note to end uh, this first episode on. Yeah, I did, too. Uh, You know, I think that at the time I remembered being like kind of frustrated that there wasn't a lot of Arya in this first episode of season two because she is, you know, Macy Williams was so spectacular as that character in the first season. You just want to get back into that story really quickly. But it's an exciting tease for where the show is going to go in the very next episode where we're going to finally start really digging into the Arya storyline and the Arya on the road, which is going to come to really dominate, I think, our fondest memories of that character, even though that's some of the hard stuff she endures as a character uh but yeah and i think that you know that importance of gendry that's being um hyped up here with this being the final note of the episode that hasn't really come to bear on the show in a very significant way except for the fact that he was important while he was on the show in those first three seasons then he was gone for three seasons and now he's back And it really does make you wonder, like, what is the show's long term plan for Gendry Baratheon? Like, what does this show really want to do with this character? Ultimately, Um, can't wait to find out. That's something that, like, I never thought that I'd be, like, really excited to find out where the show is going with Gendry. But I'm curious. I'm really curious to see what happens to the last Baratheon standing. Iron Throne or GTFO. Yeah, that's right. That's (laughs) absolutely correct that's yeah. it that's cool. I, I did like that they were like the they were the gold cloaks were like torturing the blacksmith they're like uh what is his name what is his name uh he's like all right his name is gendry he's got yeah. a bull's head helmet he made it himself like all right we, we didn't need to <laughs> like you know that who cares uh you know how he came to possess the bull's head helmet 
Yeah, he probably also like you don't have to hold me this close to the fire. I will just tell you, he's yeah. just Gentry. Like I'm happy to tell you that I gave him away me. for nothing. Like uh, I tell, I kicked him out yeah. for no reason. I I'm thrilled to give him up to you. It would be my pleasure. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I I had forgotten too that uh, that Jano Slint was the was the one who kills the baby Baratheon in uh, Littlefinger's whorehouse. Like I've always been uh, very anti Jano Slint. I know that's uh, a really uh, putting myself on a limb once again to take that hard line against Jano Slint. I know he's a, a quietly popular character, uh, but I, I I hated this guy and I I love that he eventually gets his comeuppance from Jon Snow in season, I think that's season five, uh, or yeah, I believe it's season five when he when he beheads Jano Slint. Uh, but I'd, I'd I'd only I'd only attributed like the 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 need for vengeance there to the Ned Stark thing, but forgotten the dude was a baby killer too. Like that's that's messed up. That's just not great. This mm-hmm. guy deserved everything that came his way. Yeah. And then one other thing that I have, uh, we mentioned uh, Sir Dantos, of course, that he will pay, uh, be a, a significant character down the road as uh, he will be uh, pretty integral to the purple wedding plot in season four. Yeah, definitely um, more actively involved in the book than the show, if I'm remembering it right. But he'll he'll factor into the show as well. He'll start showing up a little bit more here and there. Uh, I always felt bad for Sir Dantos. I always thought that he ends up getting a pretty raw deal. I don't know if he's going to do something along the way that I'd forgotten about where he's like really, really scummy. I don't really remember exactly like what he does along the way before he helps Santa out. But I just have like the image of him getting like riddled with crossbow bolts uh from Littlefinger's boat still in my mind he like catches one to the face it's really gnarly it's a terrible way to go mm-hmm. all right josh anything else from this first episode of season two of game of thrones yeah just scrolling through really quickly uh we we now have the final scene between rob stark and theon Greyjoy that we will ever get theon Greyjoy is about to embark on his journey to the iron islands to convince balon Greyjoy to join the stark cause that is going to be the beginning of many very bad decisions for theon Greyjoy and tons of hardship and once again you know we we talked before uh in our season one podcasts about that scene from season seven where john is going to tell theon you're a Greyjoy and you're a stark uh and theon is going to have a scene with rob here where he's gonna be like i know i'm not a stark but i was raised like one and it's like rob just give the man some validation Give the give your give this brother some love, you know, like tell him tell him that he is a Stark and you're not going to get betrayed. And maybe so many catastrophes could have been averted. But ah, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's also sad. So many would have could have should have here in Game of Thrones, Rob. It's it's ugly business. It's really, really terrible. Um, also, Gilly shows up in this episode. Hi, Gilly. Yeah. Gilly, uh, the, the, do not touch any of Craster's daughters, guys. Uh, nobody thought Sam was going to be the guy to uh, violate that rule. They should have when Sam was like losing his mind over the sight of seeing women for the first time in six months. Girls, I haven't seen a girl in six months. <laughs> like, a, like, yeah, maybe this is going to be the one. Maybe he'll be the guy. He's going to be the one. Uh, right. But Hello, Gilly. Nice to have Gilly on the show. Josh, what's coming up in uh, season two, episode two? 
Season two, episode two, a.k.a. The Nightlands. We're going to spend more time with Arya on the road. We're going to see everything that's going on there now that she is hanging out with Yorin and Gendry and Lamy Greenhands, your favorite and mine. Hot Pie is there as well. Uh, we're going to see Theon go to the Iron Islands. It's going to be the first time we've ever visited the Iron Islands. We'll see a little bit more of Dragonstone culture. We'll get to meet Salador Sand for the first time. Remember him? Yeah. Did you forget about Salador Sand? I didn't forget about him. The show did. The show <laughs> seems to have forgotten about Salador Sand. <laughs> yeah, you I know? couldn't tell you his fate off the top of my head. Uh, <laughs> does, he, does he just desert status? I think as far as I could tell, they just like wrote him off. Like he's just gone. You know, I don't think he's been seen since season four. If I'm if I'm remembering right. I remember when they, they were in Bravos and they paid him money. And did he just like drop off Stannis like north of the wall and then left? I think maybe. I think that's my ship. Yeah, it's a very limited uh, amount of screen time for Salador Sand. Just looking him up on the Game of Thrones wiki right now. How many episodes would you say Salador Sand appears in? I'll say five. All told. Five. Would you be shocked to hear that you are uh, are over on Mm, five? What was it, four? He makes it into three episodes (laughs) of Game of Thrones. That's it. Three episodes. Okay. One ep- one episode in season two, one episode in season three, and one in season four. Not a lot going on with okay. Salad or Sand. That's <laughs> according to the to the wiki, at least. Let's see. Let's see if the wiki's got it right or if the wiki needs to be updated. I, f- I feel like he's in more of season two than just one episode, but we might be looking at our one and only Salad or Sand season two episode next week. Okay. All right. That's well, that's exciting. enough to tune in, right? Like, that's definitely exciting stuff. Well, we will that's be... Uh, the number one and number two, uh, Salvatore stands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that's right. I think okay. that's right. All right. Uh, Josh, do we have a hashtag today? Uh, I don't think that Salvatore stands is appropriate for today. Next but week. I like next, week. next week. Next week. We can, we can hang on to that. Uh, comet the dog, the comet. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that's all i've got that's a uh, caster's creep yeah caster's creep i like that one yeah, uh, good stuff. Where, where do you have this is this the 11 out of 11 in your rankings oh yeah i think so i do think so i mean i think it's a, you know it's a fine episode um you know there's very few episodes of game of thrones that i think are just like outright not great uh but this one it's not it's not the it's you know i think it's of the ones we've seen so far i think it's the it's the one that excites me the least even though there's a lot of fun stuff happening now that the war of the five kings is starting to brew and we don't even have the iron islanders in the mix yet but i do think that uh just i think some like uh, on some structural levels i really do think that a maester crescent prologue would have uh, helped this pop a little bit more as it is it just just feels like an episode of game of thrones which is fine but for your season premiere like i want a little more oomph Right. A lot of world building going on and a lot of laying of track for stuff that's going to ultimately come down the road. And unfortunately, I think that there's going to be a lot of stuff in season two, which is uh, laying track for things to come. Yeah. And I think, you know, like even think to like uh, the season seven premiere and that first scene where Arya Stark answers the Red Wedding as Walter Frey, like as a faceless Walter Frey. Like that is such a moment. Like you you want moments to kick off your seasons. And I don't think I don't think Game of Thrones is always so good at that. So the season premieres are always a little bit a little bit here uh, here and there for me. Okay. All right. Well, we will be back to talk about episode two of season two uh, with you next week. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes. Of course, uh, you could follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. He is at Round Howard. 
I'm at Rob Sestrino. We will be back next Tuesday to talk about more Game of Thrones with you here on Winter Was Here, Game of Thrones Rewatch on Post Show Recaps and THR.com. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.